I'm going to go first this time. Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. My name is James and I'm in the Private Practice Podcast studio in Casablanca, Morocco. Whoa, slow down there, Chief. (laughs) Wow. I I realised last time that it's good to get this out of my system right at the beginning because last time what happened was I was just so calm and relaxed and looking at the blue things that when it was time for me to speak, um, I thought it was... I I launched into that. And so that's how Dan would introduce it, but here's how I would introduce it. And then I had all my fun at your expense right at the beginning. So I'm not going to do that this time. You're not going to do that. When are you going to have your fun at my expense? After you've said, and I'm Dan Brown in the London Private Practice Podcast Studio, welcome to our second part, looking at the six key learnings of Carl Rogers, one of our favourite, most influential psychologists. We're going through his book, On Becoming a Person. Welcome back, dear listener. It's great to have you with us. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're reading along with us or not. Either way, we hope you enjoy as much as we do some of the things that Carl has to say. They're really, really enjoyable. It's just a pleasure reading um the way that he thinks um he's like a he's like a, a, a the kind of person that you'd invite to your last supper if you only have sort of like six invitees when you say that as an ideal intro i will then be silly and giggle and get it out of my system in the designated small talk section which even though i don't really like um at least it is a fenced off area where I don't need, where anything goes and we didn't even do that last episode. Well um, hello to the listener um, I'm Daniel P Brown from the London Private Practice Podcast Studios. I'm really pleased to have you here today for our second instalment on um, our review and exploration of Carl Rogers seminal text on becoming a person. I am so excited to get through that full full list that we started last week and um, maybe then uh, look at the A to H section which I'm so so pleased that we have broken down into little bite-sized pieces for your for your enjoyment and I've got Dan on full screen this time because uh, last time with some technical difficulties he was very small so I wasn't really able to pay full attention to his expressions Mm -hmm. and his body language in the way that he would like whereas Mm -hmm. now he is filling my screen in front of me um and how's the camera angle for you does that work for you james Uh, yes excellent excellent this is nothing you're pausing (laughs) carry on Okay, so what's been going on in your world before we get down to the nitty gritty? A small talk, small talk, private practice, small talk. Uh The clocks changed in the UK on Sunday and that has been throughout my life enough of an ordeal i mean i guess up until the whole time i was a child and a teenager i didn't really need to think about it because i was living in a house where my parents would change the clocks so i didn't i just didn't need to think about it when it happened i could see it happening oh the clocks have just changed i'm watching the hand being wound a full 365 degrees in front of me i now know that the hour has gone forward or back and then when i left home i think by then 
laptops and phones were automatically changing the time, so you didn't really have to think about it. It was more like you had to remember that you were going to gain, like the, your 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 sleep was going to be an hour longer or shorter than you imagined. That was really the only thing to think about. And if you had any kind of devices that weren't connected to the internet, you'd have to change the time and not rely on them for the time. So, I mean, as but it's more like as a student, when the clocks changed on a Sunday, it didn't really make that much difference. Like if it took me the whole day to suddenly realise, oh, the clocks have changed, let me just check my laptop time, it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Then, um, and that just continued. And even though it's happened at the same time every year my whole life, I would have believed you if you'd said the clocks have just changed in, if you'd said that in August, September, October, beginning of November, end of November, maybe if it got to December, I'd think it's a bit late this year. And if you said the clocks are changing in July, I'd think, no, they're not. It's too early. But any time between that, you could say the clocks are changing and I believe you. And if it was a practical joke, I would you could guarantee that I would be fooled. Then mm-hmm. I, in 2018, uh, when I left the country, I got used to thinking about two different time zones, the time zone in which I was living and the time zone in which I might be uh, calling people or whatever if I did anything like that. And so when the clocks changed... I started to become a little bit more... Like, I, I knew that it was November and March by this point. You, you'd be less likely to fall, pull the wall over my eyes. But now that, that I'm um, in Morocco where there's no... where they don't change the time each year at the same time for summer and winter because it's further south, it's not necessary... I have to be a, a lot more aware of the time zone change because up until last week, the time zone here was the same as the UK. So, for example, to call you, if you say I'll call you at 11, then it's 11 for you, it's 11 for me. And I, and then I was aware that the time zone was changing on Sunday. This is a great story and I'm almost I'm, finished. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm definitely... I'm, I'm with you on this one. It's the best small talk I think you've ever done. I was aware that the time was changing in the UK on Sunday and that there was not a, 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 an equivalent British, uh, you know, Moroccan summertime, African summertime. But then, by coincidence this year, Ramadan time happened at exactly the same hour as British summertime, which meant that the clocks for Greenwich Mean Time went, whatever they did, forwards, backwards, whatever the correct word is, at the same time as they did the opposite in Morocco for Ramadan, because even though they don't have summertime and wintertime, they do change the time zone in Morocco uh, for Ramadan by one hour. And it was inverse to the UK. So imagine you're in space... And you're in some kind of vortex, portal, whatever you want to, however you want to think of it. And simultaneously, one half of your life goes further into the future on your right-hand side, and the other half of your life goes further into the past on your left-hand side. And you're supposed to just carry on as normal, going, oh, yeah, um, last week it was 11 o'clock here and 11 o'clock there, but now it's 9 o'clock here and 12 o'clock or whatever. Um, and so I have not 
adjusted very well to that. So right now, for me, it is 1pm. What time is it in London? It's 1.56. No, that's not helpful because it's obviously 12.56 here. It's not like it's four minutes. (laughs) Okay, I'll ask that again. I will adapt to your level of specificity. Right now it is 12.57 in Morocco. What time is it in London? It's 1.57 in London. That is the greatest small talk ever. I don't even know at what point I zoned out. So I'm not sure whether you were only talking about clocks and time difference, but it was great. I think we got probably four (laughs) minutes, five minutes. The listener is probably, I don't know, like, can you have an ear orgasm? They must just be like in heaven in total bliss from whatever it was that you were just talking about i was so mesmerized i i was kind of like tripping it was almost like i'd had some out-of-body experience whilst you were talking it was like whoa clocks backwards forwards left to the right i have no idea wow that was amazing james well if you zoned out at 1349 in london then you zoned out at 1249 here in morocco at least we can conclude that yeah that's cosmic and uh, I thought basically because we're we're basically in the middle of an episode, so no, like if you're if you didn't listen to last week's episode and you're just starting here, then that's your problem, listener. Uh, yes, I say that with the kind of judgment that Carl Rogers would never um, hurl unceremoniously at one of his patients. Um, but if you have correctly resumed after listening to the part one last week, then that means that you want the contents of this episode. You're coming here for something you know you want. So I can tell the most boring story at the start of the episode and the listener will either skip through it to get to the bit they want or they'll put up with it anyway because they, they, they know that what's coming in this episode is the thing that they want. Because if this was, if this was the beginning of our Carl Rogers mm-hmm. series, if this was episode one... And I I gave 15 minutes telling people (laughs) how I struggle with time zones, especially if the listener doesn't struggle and doesn't care, both of those things combined, then the chances of them staying with us to find out if Carl Rogers is going to be interesting or not are very slim and Mm -hmm. they probably go but we have a captive audience so Dan do you have anything boring that you want to uh, tell the listener now whilst you have a chance to just indulge us something that is really interesting and relevant to you but not to me or the listener you now is the time to be as self-indulgent as much as as much as you well within let's say three minutes well last week i was down at the allotment um pulling up weeds and some weeds have these really sort of long tail like tendrils like uh, roots uh, under the ground and i was there with my with my buddy who's an emergency department nurse um, and he'd never been down the allotment before and I've been telling him how wonderful it is down at the allotment and you know how life affirming and fresh air and nature and all that Um, and I was pulling out these roots from an old bed and and one of these roots just was like really really like kind of quite thick and I was like pulling at it and you (laughs) I, I managed to pull out from the bed the the biggest deadest most headless rat that you could possibly imagine and i was pulling on a rat's a, a dead rat's tail and i pulled it out 
And this smell and the flies and the filth that came up with it literally was making me gag. And like I said, he's an emergency department nurse and he just stared at it. And, and I sort of had sort of just dropped it where it was, looked disgusted at it and thought, of course, the first time at the allotment, he'd be appalled by this. But he simply said, oh, it also doesn't have a head, you know, and I was like, Okay, this is the most disgusting thing ever. And you know, he didn't bat an eyelid, but it was probably one of the most traumatic allotment experiences of my life so far. Uh, I suppose it would not occur to anyone that decapitation would be an obstacle to planting their organic vegetables in a suburb of London. Well, it didn't really occur to me. Although I've seen a dead rat on the allotment before, I'd never seen one buried. So I'm guessing a fox buried it during the winter. So how would you, if I told that story, how would you react? Just I'd go, I'd say something like, oh, that's disgusting or yuck. I'm glad I wasn't there or, oh my God, poor James or something like that. If I, so if I say, oh, that's disgusting... <laughs> you have um you've announced that that is that was the emotion disgust mhm and you you so you, so basically you want me to just re- you would like it if i repeat it so you say it's disgusting and then you want my reaction to be uh that's disgusting well no you asked me how i would react if you said it i didn't say how didn't tell you how you should react no, but if I if I told that story, if I said I pulled out a decapitated rat in my allotment, it was disgusting, and then your reaction would be, "Ugh, that's disgusting." It's just a repetition of the information that I've already conveyed. If I had felt it was disgusting, if I had thought it was hilarious, I might have said, "That's hilarious." But you know, okay, but you just you know you just say what it is that you you think or you feel about something. It's small talk. It doesn't really matter. You could say, how big was that rat? And I would tell you, it was honestly the size of a small cat. It was massive. Um, and that's without a head. Yeah, I, but the, the, the thing is, these questions don't really come to me very easily. And it, it's easy for me to, to to say what I think is the predictable thing, like, oh, that's disgusting. Like, obviously, you're telling a story of something of disgust. Like, you, it's it's a story because you remember the disgust emotion that you had in the at the time. That's the thing that that makes it a memory for you. Yeah. And telling the story now, you can. You can bring back that disgust emotion, yep, and it's yep. and it and it helps you to sort of like make the story more interesting with colourful language, uh, which is fantastic. But then you've done that. I mean, like for example, if you wrote that down in a book, and I re- I was reading the book and I was thoroughly enjoying the story, mm-hmm. I wouldn't put the book down and say and announce to the book that's disgusting. No, no, you might not do that, but also someone might do that. You know, it, it's just we're all we're all we're all different, James, or in certain just, ways. You know, obviously the book can't hear, but let, but I, but let me say that again. I wouldn't put the book down and then write an email to the author saying I was just reading your book in which you described something that was disgusting. You described it very well, and I would like to form you that it was disgusting. 
No, no, but but it, it, you know when you're when you're having small talk, you, you know the responses are often, in essence, just saying, "I am listening and I've heard what you said and I agree," or "That's interesting," or "Thanks for telling me." You just use different words for doing that, you know, like "Ew." How? I mean, to be honest, like that story I told, it's it's not that funny. It's not that interesting. It's not even that disgusting. Although the actual feel of its tail as I was pulling it is disgusting. It's just I can kind of and it is like quite heavy. I was like, my God, this is a fucking massive root I'm pulling out here. And then like looking at the tail and seeing it was like this long pink but hairy dead tail. That that was kind of disgusting. But you don't need to say anything really. But saying nothing is just fucking weird, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm genuinely glad you told the story because the first here are the things I liked about it. Good. The, I, go. the idea of you thinking you're pulling a root and then it turns out plot <laughs> twist it's a rat's tail. Then plot twist on top of plot twist the rat's decapitated <laughs> and, and also bigger than you'd expect. Much bigger. So I like all of that. Um and also just for context, because obviously, I mean, I've been to your allotment and mm-hmm. I've seen you do some gardening. So, I mean, I have a vivid memory, but let's say for the listener, they might, they've heard you talking about your allotment before and they might have a vague idea of what it's like to have, if they don't have an allotment, they might, in order, they have to picture it somehow. Like when you talk about your allotment, they're not thinking of elephants in Africa. They have to somehow. <laughs> They have to somehow think of you, well, however they picture you. If they've never seen your picture on our website or if they don't know you, then they, they, they picture you however they think you are based on what you sound like. In a garden setting, digging and drawing on whatever imagery they have, either an allotment that they've been to that they superimpose you onto in their imagination or just kind of like the tropes, the kind of thing that would make it their way into a a, a cartoon or a stock image of an allotment, yep. but with you in it. And But then for you to talk about pulling up a massive rat, I mean, on the one hand... From now on, they might all they might they might start to associate that with every single allotment visit. So every time you go to the allotment now, there are massive decapitated rats everywhere. You can't move for them. That mm-hmm. might be the kind of um, creativity in the imagination of the listener that leads to a fantasy. I can't remember if it's Freud's PH or F fantasies. That one. Listener can go back to our fantasy episode. I'm pretty certain it's a PH. So that's interesting to think about, but it just didn't occur to me to just repeat back to you that your disgust is something that I don't find strange or abstract. I concur that it would be disgusting if I were in your position. Um, but uh, fortunately, after the after the tedious process to get there, I did at least give you some constructive feedback you to your did. rat story. You did, and it was great. Small talk, small talk. That's the end of small talk. So last week we went through the first three of what Carl Rogers considers his most valuable life learnings. His most valuable three of six, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, and one of them I value permitting myself to understand another person. Or was it I'm more effective when I can listen to... No, it was I can, I'm more effective when I can listen to and accept myself was the example of the grandma 
being murdered in the supermarket. And uh, I was th- I was just thinking this morning that mm-hmm. with many of the things in this book, they are quite obviously useful bits of information for someone in a relationship, someone who has housemates, flatmates, someone who lives at home with their family, for example, um, someone who... Anyone who... If you work with... Uh, with lots of people. The book is something that is studied by people who are training to be therapists and nurses and so on. But its appeal is absolutely universal. But, I mean, let me put it this way. If I say to you, have you ever thought of murdering an old lady in the supermarket before because she's taking too long to pick a pepper, I've got the ideal book for you to understand the way you think about that situation and to maybe uh, uh, alter your mindset for a more satisfactory outcome. It's Carl Rogers on Becoming a Pe- There's no way I would recommend this book to someone on that basis as if that was what this book was was good for. I suppose I was thinking there are so many examples that uh, that we could give. I, I'm, I'm, I don't regret the grandma, but I'm going to be thinking in this episode about examples mm-hmm. that relate to maybe, you know, a, um, a married couple or a teenager living at home with parents or something like that. Yes, okay, so less granny murder and more real-world examples. It's not the murder. I mean, the, murdering a, gr- a grandma in the supermarket sounds silly, but that's ideal for kind of like uh, mental memory palace building mm-hmm. because you can, you mm-hmm. can easily uh-huh. uh, put murdering a grandma mm-hmm. in a supermarket aisle in your memory palace yep. and, you'll, and that little nugget of information from Carl Rogers will be very easy to draw from, to, to recollect. Much e- it, just like the listener will find it very easy in the future to recollect you heaving a decapitated rat corpse out of the ground, whereas mm-hmm. they may well have completely forgotten the last time you talked about a, a turnip or something. So, yes, to murdering grandmas, but waiting for someone to pick a pepper in the supermarket um, was a very niche example that I came up with. Like, oh, not, it's not so much that it's niche, it's, it's inconsequential. Like, it, let's say you spend your life never dealing with that situation very well. It's it's much less consequential than if you spend your life never dealing with situations with your marital partner very well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, to me, as I'm reading, as I was rereading through all of this um, th- th- this section, I am really only applying it to my current relationship and previous, you know, intimate relationships um, or thinking about my work colleagues and and my patient group and whether I've actually followed any of these wise wise words um so yeah i don't not thinking about bumping into people in a supermarket and you know fantasizing about stabbing them to death so i mean obviously i wasn't fantasizing about stabbing the grandma to death because i have a phobia of blood and that would be absolutely ghastly wouldn't it shall we proceed well i love hearing you counting down counting up Announcing scores. <laughs> so easily plead. And that, oh, great stuff. Um, so I believe that we only actually completed the first two. Is that right? No, three. So we also managed, I have found it of enormous value when I could p- permit myself to understand another human being. Of course, of course, of course. So number four. I have found it... <clears throat> Please excuse me. Let me start again. 
I have found it enriching to open channels whereby others can communicate their feelings, their private perceptual worlds to me. What's your initial thought when you hear that? I have found it enriching to open channels whereby others can communicate their feelings and their private perceptual worlds to me. I have a few thoughts. I think I should just plonk them down in a brief and concise way rather than giving a 40-minute monologue. Why not? Uh, Thought number one is I've definitely found that in situations where I have, like not deliberately, as in this is going way back to before reading this book, not thinking of it like, oh, this is that scenario, but whether it was by accident or whatever, allowing someone to communicate their feelings, suddenly I see a switch in them whereby I have gone from being just any other person to suddenly being a kind of person that a door has opened into their soul. <laughs> uh, what I, how would you put that? Like, let me just let me let me give it. So, for example, let's say before they would chat to me, they'd be perfectly nice, and then as soon as they'd get hungry or it's time to go or something, oh right, better be going. Um, nice to see you. Bye. And then I open the door to them feeling like I'm someone that they can truly open up to with things that they normally feel are difficult to talk about. Suddenly it's time for them to go and instead of a kind of oh better get my bus by it's a it, there's that their goodbye is more of a come here and a big hug and something to suggest that this has been a really rewarding time that we've just spent together and i'm genuinely looking forward to the next one and it's really going to happen and that's not just a polite thing i say to someone who i never want to see again ever in my life or don't care if i see you don't see you whatever you're talking about that connection and that closeness and that intimacy that you um experience from making a space for someone to be able to express themselves and talk to you without judgment yes yeah that is a pretty special space actually um strangely although i you know trained since i was about 20 to hang on let me just yeah about 21 22 in in mental health uh you know working as a care assistant in a hospital a mental health hospital and then training to be a nurse whilst continuing to work as a care assistant and providing that kind of space almost in a you know in, in during the development of my professional practice um i actually really struggled to find that space at home for myself or in my personal life I mean for myself and I remember it was around about the time I met you actually I was living with a good friend and I sat and had a conversation with her and I realized during one of our conversations that she uh, Emma her name was who I was who I was living with in Hern Hill at the time she was able to provide that that experience that you're talking about for me she was able to whatever she was doing make me want to sit and talk and make me want to not give a like a whitewashed version or a a cleansed version a sanitized version of what I was feeling and and at the time I remember I was my my dad was very ill 
I was struggling with various things in my own life anyway. Work was very difficult in those days. And um, and I remember thinking, how has she done this? How And also, how have I avoided this? Because I know I can provide that space for other people. So I think it is incredibly special. It's incredibly powerful for for both people in a situation like that where someone can create a space where it's safe for you to express yourself and it isn't a small talk it's not a small talk thing this is the very this is the polar opposite of small talk that we're talking about here this is that quite magical space that is cathartic and it is enriching and it is contained and it's not chaotic and it just feels safe and and it feels warm isn't really a very good descriptive word but i think the listener will understand what i mean and i'm i'm hoping that most people are able to experience that um and i think it's something very special does that does that fit with what you're saying there james yeah and in terms of outcome so I'm being kind of like I'm being the ruthless business person at the boardroom saying what's my return on investment here I want I want numbers I don't just want feelings there've been people like I'm struggling to think of a particular case study which I don't really need to it's fine to just say that kind of like as an impression of more than one situation I've found myself in whereby a an uh, a friendship or a relationship has well no a friendship has gone from spending time with someone where you see each other when it's convenient for both of you when that coincidence arrives you make small talk and then you leave as soon as it's because as soon as it's gone on too long or you think of something else that is more important than the interaction with this person right now and um and usually with people like that that's the, that's the kind of person where you decide to meet up with them and they're kind of like oh no they're busy this week but how about next weekend and then next weekend oh i forgot there's a thing and so it gets delayed and delayed and then suddenly they feel um uh, shameful that they keep cancelling on you so they arrange to see you but whereas you're originally going to sort of like spend a whole afternoon together they then end up arranging to see you for lunch or something and then when you get there they say I'm really sorry I've only got 40 minutes I've got to get back to a meeting or something and then you find yourself sitting there with them awkwardly for 40 minutes making small talk thinking about the cost of the train fare that it took to get you there and thinking hmm don't know if I'm going to spend that train fare on you again. <laughs> but then you go through this transformation whereby you bring them to a place where they feel like they can trust you and they can say something to you that they really want to say, but they never find it's appropriate. And then suddenly whatever meeting they had after 40 minutes becomes cancelable. And they spe- and they say, um, do you want to move tables over there? It's a little bit more comfortable on the sofas in the corner. We're not sitting next to that family with the screaming child. So you move the tables over there. And then they, 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 they ask the, the waiter over saying, you know, let's, let's have some, let, do you want to have um, a little snack and let me order you another drink? And then you sit there and then they start boring you to tears as they pour <laughs> their heart out. <laughs> And it turns out that they're an insufferable narcissist. 
listener, you know where the story was really going. And um, I mean, obviously, that can happen. <laughs> you, you slowly create an atmosphere of warmth, kindness and safety for them to bore the shit out of you for four hours whilst you try and think of an excuse good enough to cut them down to size and leave. Um, but yeah, I mean, so Carl said, I found it enriching to open these channels. So I think for Carl, and definitely for myself in work and in my personal life, I I, I don't know where it came, came from. I think my learning from this, although Carl obviously helped develop my understanding of this, I think my learning came as in my early 20s when I realised I was... borderline psychopathic and manipulative in what I wanted to get from any relationship with other people. So so at a certain point in my very early 20s, it hit me that I'm not going to be able to go through the next 50 years of life just just gently, gently carving and moulding what I want from the atmosphere in a room to be able to get something else that I want later, you know, whether that was sex, drugs, friendship, privacy, um, money, opportunity, closeness, whatever. Does that, does that make sense? Like the, the way that I behaved was very orchestrative, <laughs> Yeah, it was very orchestrative, you know, with my family, with my friends, with any potential partners. I I kind of knew what I was doing, but kept it secret. Didn't say exactly what I wanted. Enabled people to feel comfortable or uncomfortable, um, uh, relaxed or on edge, you know, from my own actions and behaviours. And I, and I realised that this was not right. You shouldn't be manipulating like that. And I, I remember, I couldn't give you the exact date or time but I remember a certain period in my life 20 to 21 before I started on my nursing um, and healthcare pathway where I just thought this can't go on I need to I need to be here for other people I need to do something to change how I am and who I am in order to to enable people to be to connect with me and for order for me to connect with other people not everything can be going on in my head in a planned orchestrated manipulated way um and I think it was at that stage in my life that I started to develop this idea of how do you actually really listen to a person um and communicate how do you have a conversation with someone because sitting silently whilst another person talks is not listening uh, always not necessarily listening there's an art to listening and there's an art to communication. And it does involve some silence, but it also involves something about the environment you're in. And it also, there's 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 many, many facets to it in regards to, you know, eye contact, body language, tone of voice, uh, pauses, silence. For the benefit of the listener, James is taking the pose of a little teapot, I think, right now. Yes, body language. Um, but enabling the other person to 
relax and feel comfortable enough to talk to you, but also being able to find interest in what that person's saying um, in, in order to progress a communication and a conversation. And I think, I think that that's what Carl Rogers is talking about here. I have found it enriching to open channels whereby others can communicate their feelings and their private perceptual worlds to me. Um, and I think that's what he's talking about. If you think about, you know, the classic uh, therapist's couch and what a therapist, a therapy room might look like, they're meant to be comfortable. They're meant to not be too imposing. They're meant to be um, minimal in terms of how arousing they are, you know, to your senses. They're meant to be calm and quiet and peaceful places. And I think that in terms of the interaction between two humans you're you're trying to create a kind of a virtual space like that when when you're communicating and i have myself found that incredibly enriching for the last 20 years to work on that and for that to be a key feature of who i am in terms of socializing and communicating i find that much more interesting than trying to have fun (laughs) well i think there are all kinds of um nuances to this that apply outside of the therapy room because in the therapy room you're paid to be enriched by opening uh, channels of communication between uh, yourself and the client and outside of that when it's when it's a friendship for example uh, like the examples I was thinking of earlier the worst case is, is, is some kind of abusive relationship but like the, the worst neutral case scenario is when you end up in a in a friendship that is just a friendship of convenience and you only meet the other person like I was saying when you can be bothered and they can be bothered and there's nothing else that that you'd rather be doing or or if you do sacrifice something you'd rather be doing it's because you feel like you should meet this person obligation you've cancelled on them too many times or maybe you want to see them but you definitely get the impression that they are feeling obligated to see you and they don't feel like they can cancel on you a third time in a row so they squeeze you in between other things or whatever I, I wouldn't necessarily say that those kinds of relationships are pointless but if too many of your relationships are like that it's the kind of frustration that can lead to resentment and loneliness and isolation and uh, a general negative outlook on other people and so you so you definitely need at least some uh, relationships where there is a possibility to just say whatever you want to talk about without fear of judgment rejection disinterest or something like that um but then the other the other side of that is the like, I, I i i i tried to kind of squeeze two points into that little anecdote earlier but because there have also been situations where i've unintentionally made someone feel like they can completely open up to me and this was not something that i orchestrated and then suddenly they're opening up to me and like Irvin Yalom, I am so bored with what they have to say, but I'm also aware that they haven't felt the ability to do this. They're not used to being able to talk like this. And suddenly uh, it's like all their 
no, it's not like all their Christmases. It's that that they it's it's all been bottled up inside them, and now it's all just flowing and flowing and flowing. And the last thing I want to do is stop them. But I am definitely sitting there feeling like I'm not interested. Like by the time we've gone through the sixth problem in their life, I I was. I, I was interested in problems one, two, and three. Four wasn't that interesting. Five was yet another one. And now six is really time to stop. But that was back then. I was way too... Or I've always found myself to be very agreeable in the sense that it would it would have been intolerable for me to to honestly say to that person, I'm glad you feel like you can talk to me like this. We will do this again six intense stories in one go are too many for me to for, for me to really Process. give you a, a yeah a qualitative reaction to let's stop this now because i'm genuinely feeling bored with the information of your sixth drama that you're currently um telling me I whereas mean, you, an, another you time have, you could have chosen some other words but i th- i get your general point there like you've never been able to just say well well Hold your horses, Pedro. We we need to you know take a break from this. This is very intense, and my my honest reaction is you probably need therapy and not me. Yeah, yeah, that's another. If it goes that far, sorry, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have mentioned your friend's name, Pedro, because <laughs> I know who you're talking about. But I've always found myself in that situation thinking. There's nothing I can say. I just have to hope that this ends as soon as possible or find an excuse. So a a very cowardly situation because agreeableness can often lead to very cowardly action. And someone who is naturally extremely agreeable like me needs to learn to be disagreeable sometimes, just like people who are extremely disagreeable need to learn to be agreeable sometimes. You think you're extremely agreeable. It's fascinating. We should can we put a pin in that one and come back to it? And can I also just check you don't have a friend called Pedro in case when Pedro listens to this he thinks we are actually talking about them. Um over the years I've known a Petros, a Piotr, a, a Peter, what the, the listener Peter. None of them had the Spanish. No. Good, no great. So, so just so we're really clear, we were talking about an invented person there. Um, yeah, no, listen, I think there's a couple of uh, responses or reactions I have to that. One is absolutely when someone is spewing their um, bilious experiences at you and you are not in the kind of relationship that can provide the sort of support that they need or you don't have the closeness or the connection to that person to want to provide that, yet you feel obligated to support that person because they're going through such a tough time. That's a really complex situation. Now, my my other response to that would be that I think what Carl Rogers is talking about throughout his his texts and his books, is finding a space inside your own head to to take away, to deconstruct some of the commentary that you're running on that scenario and find the value and the enrichment in it despite the person's overwhelming uh, emotion, emotional vomiting at you. And so there is a way of protecting yourself whilst also gaining through that experiencing, whilst also 
at least seeming to be supportive. So it's, I mean, that that's what you know. He's a he was a top professional in his field, and he would have struggled with something like that probably regularly. And from some of my work in with certain patient groups, that's the best way to say it, it, it is very, very difficult to sit sit there and listen to something so negative, so distressing or so damaging to the individual and to be able to feel either positive or upbeat or constructive or interested or engaged. Um, and, and it's often very difficult to not just sit there and yawn, which is obviously incredibly... <laughs> incredibly rude and doesn't mean that you're not interested or you don't care it's just that that can be very overwhelming um but yeah i think carl rogers is talking about his 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 sort of systems to find enrichment from understanding that person even if him as carl rogers or you as james hall are not actually interested per se in those experiences it's how do you then use your abilities and your skills and your techniques to turn that into an enriching experience for both of you. I want to um, look at the yawn there because we, we've we've said this as if the 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 most awful outcome is that you're bored with what this person's saying, but there are a whole range of mm-hmm. feelings of of uh, kind of being ill-prepared or inadequate so when someone is saying to you my whatever my mother is dying of cancer and it's tearing the family apart and everyone started arguing and I'm the go-between and I don't know what to and, and they go on and on and on and on and on it's not necessarily that the fact that they're spending so much time giving you so many bits of information and they're all negative that it's boring it's there's, there's all kinds of other reactions along the lines of I don't feel like I can give you adequate good advice. I've never been in your situation. It's difficult for me to think of something on the spot that would be helpful. Therefore, I feel like at your time of need, I'm not able to help you. And you're not necessarily having these cohesive thoughts because you're actually listening to the person, but you're having unconscious feelings along those lines that can manifest as a yawn, which is a kind of physical representation of your deeper feeling of inadequacy or who knows what other repressed ideas the person might touch on when they start to open up in front of you i've just touched on a repressed idea in dan because he just had a very deep yawn yes um you know sorry not no yes absolutely um and also we're talk we're sort of um tiptoeing or what's it called um tightrope walking between that space where you become a sort of a therapist for your acquaintance and your friend which is never a really comfortable experience to to, to have and and it's especially not a comfortable experience to have i think for someone who is a trained counselor or a therapist you don't particularly want to do your job when you're outside of work and it's just it's it's not really uh, professionally savvy to try to so yeah but in normal human relationships if we take it you know back a few steps uh um it can be incredibly enriching to make sure that you do make time for your partner i mean obviously the classic is someone walks through the door after work and you ask them how their day is and you listen and you give that person a chance to kind of decompress and debrief and and think about all the things they've been through and you listen and you ask questions and that can be an enriching experience for both of you. Um, 
or you can be someone who asks how your day was and you don't really want an answer at all and then I'm going to question why you're in that relationship um so yeah so Carl Rogers that's it you should listen to other people and make sure you make a space that enables both of you to have an enriching experience when the answers come flowing out so that was number four (laughs) so number five yeah uh, Carl Rogers also uh, talked about that in relation to being a teacher and the experience of trying to give a classroom setting that enriching safe space that uh, like I said I think Carl was part of the great grandfather grand person grand person the grand person of wokeness I genuinely think he was although some of his ideas definitely contradict like the modern woke uh, ethos um, I think it's fair to say that there are there are plenty of let's say valuable observations in what Karl Marx had to say. But does that mean that you should create the Soviet Empire and start murdering people in gulags? Probably not. <laughs> okay, so number five. Are you excited, James? Just yes. I don't need to make this. I don't need to say anything witty or quirky. Um, I really liked these when I first read them in the book. I liked them when I was reviewing it all for these episodes, and I like with every single one we do what it brings out. Yep. I have found it highly rewarding when I can accept another person. Sorry, I was. I'll just say that again because I was facing away from my microphone. I have found it highly rewarding when I can accept another person. So can you accept a psychopath, a murderous dictator? He asks these questions. Can I really permit another person to feel hostile toward me? Can I really accept his anger as real and a legitimate part of himself? Can I accept him when he views life and its problems in a way quite different from mine? Can I accept him when he feels very positively, turn the page, toward me, admiring me and wanting to model himself after me? All this is involved in acceptance and it does not come easy. So this was basically the the crux of the topic of our two-part Carl Rogers versus the psychopaths from last year. But... I I also chose that little quote. I think it's the same one. The only thing I made a note of is, um, can I accept a person's anger as a real and legitimate part of themselves rather than trying to convince them that they're wrong and I'm right? I don't know if that's actually a quote or if that was me summarising that whole um, part of the book. But we or I focused so much last time on, is it possible to accept a psychopath? If someone is a mass murderer, can you just accept them with unconditional positive regard? And we made two episodes all about that. But this time, I want to concentrate on convincing someone that they're wrong and you're right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as an unconstructive reaction to differences in opinion. Because as soon as you don't accept another person, which is what you do when you immediately, when if someone says something and you jump in to prove that they're wrong 
or you give your opinion on the topic in a way that kind of dismisses what they've said, which is kind of the same thing. Like, oh, you say that information. I'm now going to take the opportunity to say something contradictory that I believe without any acknowledgement of what you've said, without any questioning of why my thoughts are different to yours or if, or if we have trying to lay out the territory of whether we have anything in common, if if so, how far does that extend? Are we just focusing on the extremes or do we totally disagree with each other? And if so, let's try and understand why. Instead of that, it's if you if you just give the the person your contradictory opinion, it's effectively saying, you're wrong, I'm right, and the crusade is on to convince you because there's no way you're going to convince me. This is a zero-sum battle, and it starts now. And that's never going to resolve itself because usually in that situation, the other person is just hell-bent on winning, and they start to say things they don't even believe just so that they can win. Or you do that. I think it's like a kind of a, a natural response. It's about identity. It's about... Um feeling secure it's about feeling empowered and powerful and having control and i think wanting to be right all the time is almost like a default state for many of us and i think you do need to kind of battle that and and in order to battle that sorry i think you can benefit highly from battling that i don't think you need to you can carry on as you are if you wish but um Enabling yourself to battle that drive to instantly react to someone who you feel that you disagree with or instantly react to a statement that you don't like the sound of or, or uh, can, again, can t- totally enrich relationships and learning and understanding and your ability to communicate and connect with other people. So I think it's a, it's a really powerful thing to be able to catch yourself and either understand more fully someone else's perspective or perhaps challenge your challenge your own perspective or own ideas or own thoughts um and also to realize when you're wrong and realize when you don't know or when you don't understand and being able to openly say that and accept it and and be honest about not knowing or not having the right answer or having been wrong i think is incredibly powerful i don't want to um jump the gun or the nuclear weapon here okay and, um and and go straight to the end of the book where carl rogers looks at wider world applications of how these relationships between people can extend beyond the therapy room and potentially resolve conflicts of families right the way up to international diplomacy but I'm going to. So, <laughs> as far as, so I said, I don't want to do that. I, to be honest, I don't know why I don't want to do that. I do want to do that. I'm going to change the way I started this sentence. I do want to do that. Because at the end of the book, the listener will discover that Carl Rogers does broaden this out way beyond the therapy room. Uh-huh. He, go, he, he initially goes into teaching um, how to communicate, not with one person, but with a class of people, and then how, for example, different faculties can communicate 
with other faculties around the world and and so on. And then he says he sort of then starts to become a, a kind of dreamy in the in the um, concluding sequences, if you imagine it like a kind of a film when he starts to imagine a world where we all join hands and sing together and like that coke advert i want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony actually i don't think it is just a coke advert is it it's an actual song it's a it's a lovely nice song sorry james to interrupt song just touched my heart for a moment and um, at, the, at the moment, we are recording this whilst a war is going on. And there are many yeah, occasions where the first thing I think of when I hear opinions about what's going on are things that Carl Rogers has said. So, for example, when there is a war and you have a stubborn aggressor who is single-minded about achieving a goal and you have another country being attacked and at all costs, as an existential situation, they need to stop that aggressor from achieving their goal. You have two sides with an almost impossible-seeming situation. And um, in this particular case, with Russia invading Ukraine, there is one frame of mind for dealing with this, which can be summed up with the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who clearly wishes to resolve this with with peaceful diplomacy, with talks that result in some kind of compromise and the resumed stability of the sort of like global world order as it was right up until the the war started. But then, of course, there are plenty of opinions about how you can't just go back to how it was. The world has changed. Um, And then everyone's got an opinion about all sorts of things. And there's the example that I have not heard firsthand, but I've heard secondhand of Russell Brand as a vocal carrier of the message of pretty much everything that in this example the aggressor Vladimir Putin is doing is something where you can find uh, an example of the equivalent sin having been committed for example Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine while Tony Blair and George W. Bush invaded Iraq Uh, Vladimir Putin um, does this well so and so from America did that. Vladimir Putin has this kind of policy. Well, America has been doing that, blah, 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 and and on and on and on. And it's a kind of empathy. It's like, rather than just looking at murder on an enormous scale and saying this has to be wrong, it's a case of thinking, well, the person is doing this for a reason. I want to understand that reason on a human level, not just a strategic level. Like you can, because it's it's historians and economists and politicians who'll say, well, look at the history of the Russian Empire and look at the the quote that attributes back to Vladimir Putin at the end of the Soviet Union, blah, blah, blah. And you can create an understandable narrative of logical behavior like you could say this is why vladimir putin is doing this because here is a here is a a historical context that gives you a logical step from 
something that happened in the past to what is happening now. But when people say, for example, uh, it's very hypocritical to say that a, a regime cannot invade a country when the response to that is coming from countries that have previously found it perfectly fine for them to invade and change a regime that they didn't like somewhere else. That, to me, is an example of trying to kind of... It's like trying to be Carl Rogers and to accept Vladimir Putin as a legitimate source of whatever, feelings and emotions. Like, if I try to be in your position, I can understand why you would feel that way and I can understand the hypocrisy as well of acting in a way that suggests that you're wrong and I'm right. How can I possibly say you're wrong and I'm right when I too represent a nation that has done pretty much what you're doing? But these, I just don't think, firstly, I don't think those parallels stand up there are i don't think there are any like if, if you say russia is invading ukraine that's like britain and america invading iraq they're they're not identical parallels they cannot be used as parallels for all kinds of reasons that i won't go into i, don't, I think I, I guess my conclusion is no no to being carl rogers in this situation by all means as an indulgence or not just as an indulgence, but as a strategic, as vital context for understanding why something atrocious is happening in the world, by all means, you have to empathise with Vladimir Putin to kind of understand this. But to then say that that therefore makes him legitimate in what he's, in his actions... He's, he is... Uh, every human being is legitimate. Every emotion is an honest emotion but some actions do not need to be tolerated such as mass slaughter on a mass scale does not need to be tolerated i don't care how you came to that conclusion well it's not that i don't care but it does regardless of how you came to the conclusion that you were going to commit mass slaughter i'm not going to take that action as legitimate even if you're emo- even if i can call rogers your emotions as being legitimate honest truths from a person who I can accept and value with unconditional positive regard. The fact that you're the consequence of your action is mass murder means I feel like the right thing to do is to stop that. Well, there you have it, kids. So (laughs) just for clarification, we do not condone Stalin, nor Hitler, nor Vladimir Putin, nor George Bush's actions, nor Tony Blair's actions during the Iraq war but we do understand that they did have valid feelings <laughs> I, I, I don't have any conclusions to i mean not the, the listener will not care about my opinions on this whatsoever but um well i tell you what let me do what i should have done at the start instead of uh, instead of just launching into that uh, monologue about war the 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 phrase that I wrote down: Can I accept a person's anger as a real and legitimate part of themselves, rather than trying to convince them they're wrong and I'm right? I wanted to look at the most extreme example of that in a real world example that I could 
that I could. Mm-hmm, and right mm-hmm. now there is just the, the obvious thing. There's a war going on. So therefore, let me reread that. Can I accept Vladimir Putin's anger and, in this context, aggression demonstrated by invading a country and indiscriminately murdering whoever gets in the way. Can I accept Vladimir Putin's anger as a real and legitimate part of himself rather than trying to convince Vladimir Putin that they're wrong and I'm right and I being world leaders who represent me, one of which I didn't vote for but my nation democratically voted for him, goes onto the stage and says, Vladimir Putin, you're wrong for doing this and we are right for supplying military assistance to Ukraine in this example. My answer to that is, is it's extremely complex, but I, I, it's not obvious. It doesn't seem obvious that the world outside of Russia should just be like Carl Rogers accept this invasion as a real and legitimate part of Vladimir Putin's emotional catalogue and um, resist trying to convince anyone that anything happening is wrong and should be stopped. Yeah, but there's, there's definite difference between having thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, um, and having... A, an action, and expressing an action, expressing those thoughts, feelings, ideas, emotions in an action that harms another, like that is not what we're talking about here. Oh, so let's say Vladimir Putin was extremely vocal about wanting to recreate a, a Russian empire, but he said, "Oh, I couldn't possibly do it because um, I'm a humanist and I wouldn't kill another living being." Um, because that would simply be an intolerable thing to do. Then we could all say, I completely accept your anger that the Russian Empire no longer exists and you would like to be the head of an empire. Yep. And it's a legitim- a real yep. and legitimate part of yourself. And I don't want to convince you that you're wrong and I'm right about this idea. Let's simply have a discussion so that I can understand why you think that. And I can see if you can understand why I think this way. And we'll see what we have in common. And, then, and it'll be a wonderful time and we'll have cake and whiskey. That's not the same as... Let's go with looking... cake and vodka, shall we? Okay. <laughs> Potato salad and vodka. Absolutely. And, and other stereotypes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Um, I, think, uh, I think on the whole and generally people globally feel that it's wrong to attack and hurt and harm and maim, blow up, kill, murder other people, generally... And then when something incredibly emotive that is personal to them becomes the reason for that, it's much easier to get behind that violence. But what what Carl Rogers, uh, what I understand Carl Rogers is saying throughout his text is let's understand the person that's having those feelings because of the emotion. Um, so that's having those thoughts and, and wants to act in that way because of the emotion. And if we can understand that person and and those feelings and that, that those experiences and 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 where they've come from and their history and their culture then we might be able to like you say you know meet somewhere in the middle and negotiate and talk and understand each other and stop the violence or stop the abuse or stop the outrage um but the the feelings and thoughts and ideas of everyone are valid and come from a place of experience 
which I believe leads us very nicely onto number six. Listener, if you're still with us, I'm I'm so proud of you because today is is a is a is is a roller coaster. Well, it is like a roller coaster. Sorry, I should say. Number six. No, but hang on. There was something actually I did want to talk about because I think it's also very difficult for us to. So what was it? Let me just get, let me just go through Carl with a C's little little list. He said. Can I really permit another person to feel hostile towards me? That's one that you have covered very nicely there, James. Yes, we can allow them to feel hostile, but we won't allow them to attack. Can I accept his anger as a real and legitimate part of himself? Yes, James can. As long as he doesn't attack. Can I accept him when he views life and its problems in a way quite different from mine? Yes, yes, we can. Can I accept him when he feels very positively toward me, admiring me and wanting to model himself after me? All this is involved in acceptance and it does not come easy. Now, I think that is also very, very difficult when people think incredibly warmly towards you and want to model themselves after you. I think people can find that quite threatening and quite creepy and quite um, unnerving. Um, and I know that obviously there's a very you won't know this James because you don't have any siblings because once you were born your parents realized that the kind of thing that they'd produce and they thought no more of that thank you no they realized they couldn't improve on it and it would be futile to try I accept your alternate <laughs> beliefs as being <laughs> legitimate and genuine um, no, but, but seriously, like siblings, younger siblings will often, you know, replicate the behaviour of their older siblings and want to be just like them, especially when they're younger. As they get older, that separation and difference obviously becomes more marked. But um, And the elder sibling will often find the younger sibling incredibly irritating that they want to listen to the same bands or wear the same jacket or buy the same shoes. Um, and, and I think that's probably true later on in life, but it's a bit more subtle and it's a bit more... Um, uncomfortable, maybe not so spoken. So I'm just, I just wanted to quickly raise that because that was sort of the other side of the coin. When someone really admires you, it can actually also be quite threatening and uncomfortable. Yeah. Anything to say about that, James? I can't think of anything concise to say about it, so... <laughs> shocking, absolutely shocking. Okay, well, let's move on then to number six. Of course, if the listener has any thoughts on that, they can always write in and uh, reach us at... Oh, there is, if you go to the website, there is a contact us button. And the website is privatepracticepodcast.net. And how would we, as uh, um, administrators of that website, check whether we'd ever received any correspondence? I'm pretty sure I'd double-check that it forwards to something that we would be able to see. Well, listener, you're disappointing me having not contacted us for some time. So please do send in your thoughts on siblings and sibling rivalry. Okie dokie, number six. The more I am open to the realities in me and in the other person, the less do I find myself wishing to rush in to fix things. Pause, sorry. There's a delivery person at the door. It's another moment for you and I, dear listener, to just have to ourselves and maybe just relax, decompress now that James isn't here. You can let all of that anguish and and stress and and those screaming thoughts of hatred towards him out. 
he's not here. It's okay. You just take your time, take a moment, look around the room, take a deep, deep breath through your nose. And then just release because sadly, he's back. Okay, a bizarre sequence of events took place there, but it's all completely resolved. Let's carry on. Number six. The more I am open to the realities in me and in the other person, the less do I find myself wishing to rush in to fix things. Do you want me to give you a bit more? Yes. Okay. As I try to listen to myself and the experience going on in me, and the more I try to extend that same listening attitude to another person, the more I respect for the complex processes of life. So I become less and less inclined to hurry and to fix things, to set goals, to mould people, to manipulate and push them in a way that I would like them to go. I am much more content simply to be myself and to let another person be themselves. I mean, I really relate to this one. I, I very much relate to this one because there's there's a sort of a... Uh, it's not a double bind. There's a contradiction. Yeah, for, for a therapist or for a counsellor or for someone who has a client group of people with mental health problems or... Uh, psychological concerns or emotional difficulties they're coming to you with problems and they want those problems to not be there so uh, firstly for the carer a nurse is often considered as an agent of change a change agent uh, a healer someone who works with the person to get them better to fix the problem and in the kind of psych psychological realm the person-centered therapy of carl rogers uh, and of course, this comment that we're just reading now, he says, don't, put, don't rush in there to try and fix things because the beautiful, diverse, wonderful experience of life means that things are happening, things are moving, things are changing. It is important for a person to feel and experience when in distress or uh, confusion or worry. It's important for a person to feel and experience those things and to go through them. So don't rush in there and try and fix the problem. Um, it also takes away some of that person's sense of agency and some th their sense of control, and it, in essence, infantilizes them. And there's a whole host of reasons why you don't just fix the problem for them, even if it is in your power to do that, which, of course, it's not really. The person needs to do it themselves. Um, but uh, there's also, you know, in your training and in reading books like this, you know, the idea that you can sit back and enjoy supporting that person through that experience. And, and Carl is saying in this little paragraph that he finds great joy and personal satisfaction in not rushing in to fix things, in being open to the realities inside him and inside the other person. Yeah, I completely relate to that, but in the, in, in, I, I see it as failing to really understand differences in the way people think and the reasons why and having a lack of natural empathy and thinking that, well, if I can see someone doing something that is, to me, quite obviously wrong and stupid and they keep doing it, then either then I have a choice of either just disengaging with the world because it's all wrong or I have to step in and fix things and then everything will be better 
and as if those were the only two possibilities. And often it's very frustrating having to either pick one or picking one and realizing that it's totally unsuccessful in its outcomes. And then to go th to go from that to a much more helpful understanding, in particular from the things that we've looked at, the ideas of the unconscious and different personality types, and to and then from that, from experience of of refusing to rush in and fix things when I see someone in my world, whoever they might be, but, but not just an incidental figure, behaving in a way that I think. Give us an example. Is wrong. You're, you're, like you're you're being too cloudy okay. here. Come on, you know something that someone's done that is just wrong, don't you, James? You can. I mean, why not you? No, don't use me. Don't use me as an example. But why not use me as an example? But let's try not to destroy me as a person because I might be very sensitive right now. Think of my feelings. I don't need to be even more boring than usual and go on about trying to fix your expanding list of projects that you want to start as opposed to the sensibly small list of projects that you could realistically finish. I don't need mm -hmm. to go into that or, or anything like that. Um, but you'll like the Freudian aspect of including the mother figure in this oh, story. Good, good. As someone who's obviously, someone I've obviously known my whole life, kind of starting as a teenager, I definitely wanted to rush in and fix things. As, as I kind of grew up and became influenced by my aunt with my sort of worldviews and as I started to have political ideas or whatever it might be that I could that contradicted with the ways in which my parents behaved, it was extremely tempting for me to rush in and fix things. That's the exact terminology that I would use. And let me give you a perfect example. We would always have the Daily Mail in the house. And I very much, as a teenager, I was absolutely adamant in my righteousness and the virtue of my crusade to rush in and fix that. As in, my teenage mindset was this extremely biased, unhelpfully provocative newspaper is filling this house with undesirable ideas long before social media and echo chambers and, um, and news outlets requiring negative emotions to get clicks and shares. The Daily Mail was doing that as its main function for the whole time that I grew up. And so stirring the pot basically with indignation about anything anyone did that did not fall in line with their code of how people should behave. And, and I thought that this was just, this was just poison. Is this, a good, is this a good example? I'm not sure. Like for someone, it's, it's basically someone's choice. Like, I like this newspaper. And then another person thinking, I don't like your choice of newspaper. I'm going to step in and fix this. But is a choice of newspaper the same as a well, it's not the same as a behavior, but can it can it can it be used as as an example here when we're really talking about like if I see your behavior as I don't know, give me a behavior, give you a behavior. Alcohol drinking is is a behavior. Self harm is a behavior. Not listening very well is a behavior. Okay, yeah, let's do that. 
choosing to do the opposite of what someone who has advised you is a behaviour. Um, leaving things to the last minute is a behaviour. Having a list too long to do is a behaviour. That's actually. I can even use one of those as a real example. Forget the newspaper. If anyone says do this, then they have to do the opposite because being, con- being contrary. Yeah, um, that's something where I would have felt like, well, I can see the way you're suffering here. I can see that someone is giving you good advice and you cannot take it because you won't be told what to do. Or there, you have an opportunity here to improve your life and you will not take it because it's been presented to you by someone else in a manner that you don't like. And so you're stupidly, stubbornly refusing to take that opportunity. I have to step in and fix this. <laughs> and yep, yeah. never, ever did I successfully step in and fix it. I successfully stepped in all right, but I never successfully fixed anything as far as I'm concerned in the time, according to my objectives at the time, and in retrospect, according to how things panned out, given my perspective in the present. I think stepping in to help is something, you know, it's a really difficult thing because often we'll step in to help people we care about and stepping in to help, trying to fix things. I mean, this is, you know, this is, that's a podcast in itself, to be honest. That's a whole episode, if, if not an entire mini-series because it's, so, it's such a complex scenario. But in that scenario, how would you react? So if, let's say, I'm someone who can never take advice because I don't do what people tell me to do, and so if someone gives me good advice that would be beneficial to me, I absolutely, it's intolerable for me to take it. Um, instead of stepping in to fix it, what would you do? Well, so I, I can give you a clinical scenario that is similar to this, of course. And there's a whole bunch of techniques which you probably can't go into now. And also I probably wouldn't, you know, uh, having not been practising clinically in this area, I'd probably struggle a bit to explain. But in essence, what you're trying to do when someone's behaviours are... are, um, Perhaps when someone's making bad decisions and bad choices that are affecting them and harming their life and harming their sense of self and harming their identity or uh yeah just harm har- harmful they're not they're not improving their life and you want them to do something different in essence what you have to do is get that person to come up with that solution that you think is right You're, themselves they need to be the person that comes up with it and they need to be the person that instigates it they need to be the person that polices it or monitors it or motivates it you can kind uh, well you can kind of provide a motivation t- during the process ideas thoughts options but actually to tell someone who is instinctively contra- contrary and and will act contrary to what you want them to do to tell them what to do you you know from the example you know that it's not going to work but if they are asking you for help which is often or presenting you with the problem the way to do it is there's a set of techniques called motivational interviewing and part of that is getting the person to come up with the solutions themselves so Let's say the problem. Oh, James, I'm so bored at home. I don't know what to do. I'm just here all by myself. I never do anything. Oh, oh okay. Well, what did you used to like doing before this situation arrived? Uh, I used to go and 
used to go and see Frank and we had a lovely cup of tea. I used to love walking down to the park. Um, sometimes I'd play squash. Um, oh, I did love it when Doris would pop over and we'd blah, 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 you know, blah, blah, all these things. Oh, okay, well, is there anything getting in the way of you seeing Frank or Doris or going to the park or something? Okay. Mm. Yes, I can't do this, this and this. Oh, well, what would you usually do to 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 circumnavigate that problem okay well that's a good idea that's excellent so you do that why don't why would you do that this time why don't you do that this time you could i mean you don't have to there could be another way of doing it can you think of any other ways of doing it because i can see it's a really difficult problem i can't think of a single fucking solution (laughs) even though you've got hundreds of solutions to their problem um sometimes it's about the person having the space to think it through with you you know um obviously that does not always work and some personality types and some personality issues mean that the the closer you think you're getting to having that person answer their own problem the more adamant they will be about not doing the thing that is right and that's because of a hundred different reasons but how, what do you think of that james i think you very uh, accurately managed to uh, summarise how to go about helping someone in a constructive way and yet simultaneously you managed to convey exactly how stupid you thought that person was in the tone of voice that you adopted when you were act- were playing their part. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and also remembering like Carl Rogers would 100% be... <laughs> I believe I am speaking for Carl when I say... Um, the enjoyment of the process, the being with the person during the process, the understanding that whatever, ag- you know, or trying to understand the agony and the distress and the discomfort that it is for them having this problem, despite there being a clear solution to it. You know, it, it's, it's, we have to understand that that person is not us. We have to understand that that person uh, is similar but different to us, that the reasons that they have might not be um, simple to verbalise for whatever the issue or the cause of the inaction is and we have to be able to I I think enjoy for me is the right word but engage with and be enriched with and find depth in the experience of discussing the problem you know not just needing to fix it also it's so it's so much more satisfying for an individual to fix their own problem and being the person who's there to support them through that however frustrating that can be is understanding that there's value in that frustration for both of you there is value in um experiencing the distress with another person you know in enhancing your own resilience and supporting them to express themselves and and those things are just wonderful i think that there is real clarity here from the ideas in the book and to approach a situation like that you've got someone who never takes advice which means they never take good advice which means they always react badly to good opportunities and because this person is important to you it's frustrating to see them constantly missing opportunities because of their bad choices and you feel like you want to do something it's obvious and natural to think that you have to fix it because you see a problem and you think you know the solution that you would apply if that were you and so therefore why not just go and fix it like it's a leaky tap and um, we those of us who have done that in the past pretty accurately reliably come to the conclusion that it doesn't work and then it becomes even more frustrating to not only see the person do the thing but to feel that our attempts at correcting that do not work so then 
when you hear, for example, oh, stupid Doris, who likes to go and walk in the park and to see Derek, but can't possibly see why her behaviour at the moment is not facilitating that. So I have to try and get into her silly head to try and make her see it from my... Uh, the, the, the example that you gave where Doris was stubbornly refusing to take the good advice. The clarity here is that the that what Carl Rogers says, it is valuable and enriching to find a way to help them see their own problem in a different light so that they can resolve it themselves instead of jumping in to fix it with what you think is the solution, which never works. That's the clarity, because it's easy to see this as a fog. Like, the fog is, why are people stupid? Why isn't everyone like me? Because if everyone was like me, then this wouldn't be a problem. So that's fog. You know, why are people stupid? Well, what's the answer to that? So then, you, so then finally, so, so then you um, naively decide, I'm going to fix it so that people aren't stupid. And then you can't fix it. So there's even more fog. Why are people stupid? Plus, why can't I fix it? Because I think I, my answers should obviously be correct. And they're not. So there's even more fog. Like the world is an impossible place to understand. People should just be like me. And I should be able to fix them when they're not. And neither of those things are true. So then finally, you get to your... Um, uh, reality of the world anonymous conference where you put your hand up and say uh, I don't understand the world and I need help and the 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 person says well uh, sits you down and says well you need here's what you need to do you need to try and understand why the person is behaving the way they are and you need to think of a way of trying to get them to come up with the conclusion that will benefit them instead of you forcing it upon them and you think oh yes that sounds sensible I'm going to do that and then that seems difficult so there's more fog like how do I do that it's so complicated how can I possibly understand this stupid person how could I possibly get into their mindset so that I can dangle that carrot in front of them that they pick and it leads them to the conclusion that improves their quality of life that is that what Carl Rogers is saying is that that should be a difficult thing, but that's the thing to focus on, and it is a puzzle that's solving is enriching, and that's where the clarity is. Yeah, that that the experiencing and being there and 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 putting aside because we we you know we've spoken about it in different um, series, but actually, um, and, and we've spoken about it from different theoretical perspectives. But my belief is or my understanding is that the noise in our head which we hear as our thoughts the kind of the chatter the the sounds for the most part is is idle or nonsense or emotionally driven or is um contradictory or quirky or is context-based or is related to our hunger or our tiredness but you know listening to it's important but believing it to be the truth is is in in entirely dangerous and um counterproductive it's like checking in with the i used to use this one when i was working therapeutically uh sitting in a car turning the engine on and listening to the engine for a moment and checking that it sounds right that there aren't any awkward clanking or clattering or scratching or or banging sounds is really important. 
but sitting in the car and trying to drive the car and continuously focusing solely on the sound of the engine is highly fucking dangerous because you're going to fucking crash. (laughs) Or you might crash or you might miss something or you might not get to where you want to go. And that's what we do when we focus on our thoughts solely, when we think that our thoughts are the drive, our thoughts are the driving our thoughts thoughts are our destination and where we've been and who we are because they're not they're simply the sound of the motor running and knowing that you know uh or thinking that and kind of sort of mucking around with that metaphor myself helps me realize that actually let's try and take the focus because we can do it we can almost do it with our eyes as well you can almost focus internally and not see what's going on around you so allowing us to hear our own thoughts and 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 check in with them and know what they are and let some of them come and go and sometimes maybe exploring them in our own minds is is powerful and useful but that is not who we are and what we are and when we make it that, we can make some incredibly bad decisions and we can focus on things that aren't vital. That's a wonderful metaphor. I don't know where it came from. I don't like, it seemed like, well, yeah, I know it came from you, but like, I, I, from what we were talking about, trying not to jump in and fix things, to uh, giving a metaphor for the difference between thoughts and the whole self and how to how to act in the world without thinking that your thoughts are what you should do you gave a wonderful metaphor of the car well because the character you were playing of the person who'd gone to the conference and was told this is what you need to do this is what you need to do and then them going back and still just seeing fog is because they weren't actually being they were only focusing on what they were thinking was the right thing to do they weren't embracing the experience of being with the person and somehow helping them change by meeting them on their terms and realising that they themselves were overly focused on the sound of their brain and their thoughts and their their head and their their beliefs. And, their, and the more you cling on to those things, the more difficult it is for you to change, which leads me very nicely to one of my two conclusions before I say goodbye. But you don't want to go through A to H because I don't particularly feel the need to go through A to H, but there's been a running joke that you were looking forward to going through every single one from A to H in within uh, subcategories within number six. I think if we tried to go through A to H today, we would be doing them a misjustice, a misservice, an unjust. It would not be just. Part three, dear listener, will be A to H. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going to step in and fix this. I think we can move on from this chapter in the next episode. <laughs> no, no way. No. Sometimes way. you just need to learn when to move on. Sorry, what's your conclusion to number six before parts A to H? Dear listener, I'd like to leave you with a, a, a short paragraph quote from dear Carl. The paradoxical aspect of my experience is that the more I am simply willing to be myself in all this complexity of life and the more I am willing to understand and accept the realities in myself and in the other person, the more change seems to be stirred up. It is a very paradoxical thing that to the degree that each one of us is willing to be himself, then he finds not only himself changing, but he finds that other people 
to whom he relates are also changing. At least this is a very vivid part of my experience and one of the deepest things I think I have learned in my personal and professional life. Well, I have a very profound conclusion to this episode, even if Mm -hmm. I say so myself, which I did, and I'm happy to... I don't feel at all... Let let, let me just be profound. (laughs) Okay. So the world is infinitely complex. It's impossible to understand everything. It's impossible to understand all the motivations and to understand why all people do all the things that they do and why you can't always achieve your goals and why not everyone does what you would do. And and, and sometimes there's um, uh, huge suffering and massacre of people on a vast scale and relationships that fall apart and all the rest of it, not to mention um, all the way more complicated um, ideas of how the brain works that human beings don't even understand and couldn't possibly explain to you even if they had a PhD. So we've been through a number of the six things, whatever they are, (laughs) Carl Rogers' life learnings, that basically allow some clarity without explaining particle physics and consciousness and all these and the entirety of world history and every single culture and civilization and all emotions and everything repressed in the unconscious instead of trying to explain so all of that so that you understand everything there is to understand about the world and have the answer to everything carl rogers kind of gives you a tool to find clarity in this confusing fog of complexity so he firstly prepares you in a way to deal with your relationships with people by preparing yourself to deal with yourself. So um, from last week's episode, um, it doesn't help to, 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 be, to, to act as though you're something you're not. So for, for, to absolutely start with, in order to find clarity in the world, it doesn't help to always seem like you're intelligent and reasonable when actually you find the world confusing but say that you find the world right now I find this situation very confusing and so I cannot be as intelligent and reasonable as that archetype that I've always modeled myself on it's time for me to honestly admit that I find this very chaotic and confusing then um, being more effective when you listen to and accept yourself instead of thinking Oh, how awful. I'm so flawed that I can no longer be that wonderful archetype of reason and intellect. I'm by admitting that I find this confusing simply means defeat. I'm over. I'm no longer the person I want to be. It's all over now. Um, But because by saying, uh, but by not acting as though I'm the thing I want to be, I'm basically admitting defeat. You're not admitting defeat. You're more effective when you accept the fact that you find this chaotic, because now you know that you have a purpose, which is to navigate your way through the chaos, as opposed to constantly pretending you're something you're not or walking away from the chaos because it's intolerable to not be the archetype um then you turn to other so you've prepared yourself then number three was to do with valuing um permitting yourself to understanding other people so instead of being comfortable in yourself but not accepting other people it's valuable to to develop 
empathy if it doesn't come naturally to you. So then we move on to the three this week, enriching to allow others to communicate their feelings. And we, we looked at the, the, the nuance of that. Like some people will just um, take that as an opportunity to pull the cork out and let their thought diarrhea come gushing out until there's no toilet paper factory in the world would be able to clear up that mess. You have to be a... <laughs> You have to be assertive, and when 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 it when you when you when it becomes obvious that you are that there's that there is too much information being divulged that you could possibly react to, you have to honestly say that, and you can say, "I value all of these things, but it's too much for now. So let's stop this here, and let me just address what you've said so far, and save everything else for another time. And there will be another time because we are no longer at that level of friendship where the only time we ever meet up is when it is twice a year when it's convenient. We now value each other, and so now when we say let's meet up at the weekend, we can trust that we both actually want to do that and won't be blown by the winds of alternative social arrangements. Then number five, value accepting another person, clearly defining the difference between the benefit of accepting the fact that other people have a point of view that is different to your own, as opposed to valuing their actions. So therefore, I value the fact that that I understand the world better when I try to empathise with why someone would be a murderous dictator without having to say, you know, it's fine for you to be a murderous dictator because, you know, who am I to judge you? I am quite happy to judge you, but in a way that I feel like I can express myself and that it's best if you... And the, the problem is then with the other person if they don't listen to you, but you have done everything you can. You have tried to understand why they're doing what they're doing and you have expressed the fact that it is unacceptable that their actions, as they are manifesting in the world, follow from their albeit legitimate thoughts and feelings. Their actions are not legitimate and here is my opinion on why. And then finally, when it comes to, I mean, taking it away from global affairs, when it comes to a relationship where someone in front of you is obviously behaving in a way that is destructive to everyone involved when there are alternatives that would be much better for everyone involved, you don't run in and fix it because there's ample evidence to suggest that that never works and that the alternative is way more rewarding and more likely to be effective. Beautiful, James. So whatever diarrhoea comes spewing your way, whatever tsunami of digested food gushes in your direction, Carl Rogers gives you the tools to work out exactly how to approach that situation with just the right amount of toilet paper. And I don't know, I don't know where this metaphor goes because it's not like you convince the person no, to clench no. and to stop it spewing out. No, it goes nowhere, it, James. It goes it goes nowhere, James. We'll, what we'll <laughs> do is I'm gonna sing the listener a song now, which you can f- fade over your rambling bilge or bile or whatever it is that's coming out of your mouth. Diarrhea. It's diarrhea. It's not bilge. It's not bile. It's stinky, brown, gushing diarrhea. 
I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honey bees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. All together now. Anyway, it's a goodbye from me uh, in the London private practice uh, studios. I'm Daniel P. Brown. And it's a goodbye from me, James, in the Casablanca private practice studio. And I'm looking forward to diving into the next ideas in the book because I actually had a a little jump ahead this morning before we started recording. And there are all kinds of nuggets, treats ahead for us to enjoy as we continue to swim in the waters of On Becoming a Person by Carl Rogers. All right, there we go. The ordinary boys, Preston from 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 the ordinary boys.